Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 11, A Summary of the Ancient Near East. If we go all the way back to 3000 BCE, this is what the Near East world looked like. City-states that were agricultural, stratified, deity-worshipping, writing in cuneiform, metal-producing, especially bronze, and using crucibles to create the intense heats needed for such projects using measuring equipment to measure weights and lengths, probably as a means for jurisdiction. The best examples of flourishing cities from this period are Uruk and then Ur. Uruk could be described as the powerhouse of the 4th millennium BCE, before Ur became large and opulent in the 3rd millennium BCE, thanks to its extensive trade links. We don't have enough in terms of written accounts to know who the influential characters were at the time. We only have the retrospectively created king lists that have been found in cuneiform tablets which act as a historical list of kings dating back in time. We also have the mythological stories about these kings, such as the wonderful Epic of Gilgamesh. It's not a lot to confidently hang our hat on at this stage, but historical written allusions to something at the very least. We do believe that culture was developing more quickly in the area called Mesopotamia, than in other areas of the Near East during the 3rd millennium BCE. Sumerians would congregate and settle around and in between the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, which would link the mountains of modern Turkey to the open waters of the Persian Gulf. We do believe that around this time, Semitic speakers from the Arabian Peninsula were living a much more nomadic style of life to the west of this area and those proto-Elamites were doing the same to the east. We don't know as much about their day-to-day life either. As mentioned, the city of Or would be making the very most of their extensive trade network. There is strong evidence that trade routes had existed for thousands of years, probably as long ago as the first settlements of the Fertile Crescent. So to find strong trade links in such an old city should come as absolutely no surprise whatsoever. Certainly, there is strong evidence of artisanry, as specialised skills enabled those able enough to produce jewellery 
ornaments and trinkets of advanced quality and made of precious materials from far off lands. There is some interesting detail of this in episode 3. Artisanry was not a new thing, as we can find painstakingly created clothing from thousands of years earlier. Elitism was not a new thing either, as the painstakingly created clothing from prehistoric times can only have logically been created for an individual of high standing. What 3rd millennium Mesopotamia demonstrates to us is significant advances in these things as they were developed in ever-increasing urban populations where stratification into a class-based society was an absolute obligation to bond the population of the town and ensure its wealth and survival against the other hungry city-states looking to exploit the weakness of any of its neighbours. We also don't always appreciate the technological advances of these societies as humans had always had the intelligence to create scientific ideas with all of their inquisitiveness. Irrigation techniques should never be overlooked as a milestone of human development. Not only were humans able to influence the course of a river, but they were able to understand the physical forces of counterbalance to be able to construct shadoofs that would carry heavy loads of water from waterways. If we take a look at the wider picture of the Near East, the Sumerians of Mesopotamia were not the only people making advances in their society and power. Other peoples were developing as well. The proto-Elamites were still moving around in the modern lands of Iran. The Semites of the Arabian Peninsula had started moving into the city-states of Mesopotamia themselves, further north than the firmly established Sumerians. In the lands of modern-day Syria, to the northwest of southern Mesopotamia, the kingdoms of Mari and Ebla were established and fighting over lands, with Ebla being the land nearest to the Mediterranean Sea. The whole concept of conflict was very apparent in the 3rd millennium BCE and it is probably thanks to the fact that we now have written accounts to refer to. Conflict is very likely to have existed before this time. In fact, we can near enough assume it. But the only thing that we don't have is written accounts of exactly who was doing what. We do know that there was conflict in Sumer too, with the city-states of Uma and Lagash as detailed in episode 1. But this all comes to be superseded by the emergence of a new power in a Semitic city called Kish, thanks to the work of a man called Sargon. Sargon would make Akkad the capital of his Akkadian kingdom and would systematically extend his kingdom and turn it into an empire. Sargon would take the Sumerian cities one by one, including the mighty city of Ur. The official language of this land would change 
from Sumerian to the Semitic Akkadian language, although Sumerian would survive in religious writings, a bit like Latin does in the Catholic Church. It is even reported in some texts that Sargon managed to successfully conquer the lands of those two traditional enemies of Mari and Ebla, meaning that his empire stretched from the Persian Gulf in the southeast to the Mediterranean Sea in the northwest, and that he ceremonially washed his weapons in both bodies of water to signify the extent of the area of his influence. In the grand scheme of things, even though the Akkadian conquests were like nothing ever seen before, and also left a legacy behind with its language and its revised calendar, it would be relatively short-lived. It seems like Sargon himself was the main driving force behind Akkadian success, and after his lifetime, those kingdoms of Ebla, Mari, Uruk and Susiana managed to break free from the Akkadian grip before the nomadic Gutian people of the Zagros Mountains completely debilitated the Akkadians and brought an end to their dynasties. An equally short-lived and mighty empire rose from the ashes of the Akkadian Empire when Or-Namu of Or would establish a new Neo-Sumerian kingdom known to us as the Third Dynasty of Or. This was a dynasty of great piety, as the most impressive ziggurats ever constructed are attributed to this period, with the great stepped ziggurat of Or being on Or Namu's finest achievements. The Neo-Sumerian Empire would expand to have influence over all of the lands that the Akkadian Empire did previously, but was even believed to have influence over the extended Canaanite lands of the Levant at its peak. Once again we see the Neo-Sumerian Empire fragment after Ornamu's lifetime in a very similar way to how the Akkadian Empire fragmented after Sargon's lifetime. It would be the nomadic Amorites of the Arabian Peninsula that would pressurise Sumer from the west while the Elamites would destroy the capital of Ur coming from the east. Isin would quickly establish itself as the dominant kingdom in southern Mesopotamia. The Middle Bronze Age City-states would begin to emerge as independent kingdoms in their own right after the destruction of Ur, almost symbolically marked the end of the 3rd millennium BCE and the entry into a new millennium where things would never really be the same again. The traditional trade post city of Assur was no longer supported by the travelling South Mesopotamians who would fully understand the value of its protection. Now Assur would have to stand on its own but it seems that the city had learned enough from its past to be able to protect its immediate future. In Anatolia, which had only been occupied by relatively insignificant societies who were simply living an agricultural existence of self-preservation with little imperial aspirations, the main society associated with this area 
were the Hattie people. However, they would soon be joined by people migrating from their north and the land surrounding the Black Sea by peoples talking in a very early form of Indo-European language. The Egyptians were slowly developing links to the Canaanite lands of the Levant. On the Sinai Peninsula between Egypt and Canaan, the Egyptian hieroglyphs were evolving into something much more resembling of a modern alphabet. As the Assyrian area of influence began to cement itself around its capital city of Ashur in northern Mesopotamia, another very important centre of influence came into being in the southern Mesopotamia, around its own capital city of Babylon. Babylon would consume those city-states around it, building itself a small southern Mesopotamian empire. Meanwhile, the Assyrian throne had been usurped by an individual called Shamshi Adad, who reformed the Assyrian kingdom into one that would have a much more imperial outlook going forward. This would be a birth of a long and winding relationship between Assyria and Babylon, which would dominate Mesopotamian politics for the next thousand years. Initially, Assyria prospered under Shamshi Adad by taking the Mariot lands into their empire. However, Assyria was unable to hold on to these lands after Shamshi Adad's death, and the throne of Babylon would come under the influence of the great ruler Hammurabi. Under Hammurabi, great advances in academia took place, especially in the fields of mathematics, and a new law code was published on stone tablets and monuments throughout the Babylonian Empire, showing a real demonstrating of a unity and intelligence that would lead to Babylon subjugating Assyria and all of its lands. However, after Hammurabi's lifetime, we see some disintegration of this mighty empire, as we have seen so many times after the death of a great ruler. Sargon of Akkad, Or Namu of Or, Shamshi-Adad of Assyria, and now Hammurabi of Babylon. They were all not able to leave an infrastructure for success after their own lifetimes. While all of this had been going on, things were developing in Anatolia where the Hatti people had been joined by migrating Indo-Europeans. These people would subjugate and integrate the Hatti people at a base capital city called Hattusha. This would mark the beginnings of the Hittite Empire, who would master the ability to work iron, something that had not been done before, and something that would ultimately supplant bronze as the most valuable large-scale metal product of human society. Going into the 17th century BCE, not a lot changed. The Hittite kingdom was slowly developing and consolidating itself over the peoples in its immediate arc of reach. The Assyrians remained a small independent kingdom after reclaiming its sovereignty after Hammurabi's death. The Babylonians remained the dominant force of Mesopotamia, but were constantly being challenged 
by its subjects, so it was a period of struggle and preservation of existing territory. The Yamhad kingdom had taken over the lands of Elba on the modern Syrian banks of the Mediterranean and had carved out a good-sized area of influence without much in the way of worthy opposition from neighbouring kingdoms. This was a rare quiet spell in Near East politics, where very little altered, and I think I'm going to take my lazy option to explain this and blame it all on climate. It does appear that there was a bit of a drop in temperatures, possibly exacerbated by volcanic eruptions of Mediterranean lands. It could be a very convenient direction to point my finger, but it does seem like I very often have the option of blaming climate change for periods where kingdoms and empires fail to expand their territories. Is it the real reason? I don't truly know, but I definitely felt that it was worth a mention. However, entering the 16th century BCE, we can recognise that changes were very much afoot. Not least of all those starting with a very bizarre and yet unexplained long-distance military journey right the way across the Near East. The Late Bronze Age The Hittites were a somewhat pioneering bunch, with their mastery of ironworking, their ability to build chariots and their confidence. Under their king, Mershali I, they would march downstream along the Euphrates River, which would lead them through the kingdom of Yamhad, through territories that had been settled by the Kassites from the east, and onto the kingdom of Babylonia and its capital city at Babylon. Babylon would be conquered by Mershali, and the statue of its deity, Marduk, would be stolen. However, it would be the Kassites who would swarm into Babylonia and become its new rulers. The Hittites were far too removed from the centre of their own empire to be able to hold on to these new lands, so the destruction of Babylon was at best just a Hittite raid. Mershali would return back to Hattusha only to be assassinated in an empire well known for regicide. So Babylonia was now Kassite Babylonia. The Hittites still remained in a strong position and they were successful in taking lands from the Yamhad kingdom which collapsed in the early 16th century. The new power on the scene was that of the Mitanni which would emerge in the land between the Hittites and the Assyrians in northern Mesopotamia. The Mitanni would push the Hittites out of their Yamhad lands and subjugate Assyria in its entirety. Things were starting to heat up between the powers of the Near East and as ever this would encourage technological advances. Military abilities advanced with the creation of composite bows made from more than just wood and it enabled greater range for archers with their new bows made from wood horn, bone and sinew combined. The ability to work iron was also a significant advance as well. The peoples of the Near East, specifically the Hittites, were the experts at this 
during this period. They had developed a way to carburise their iron to make it stronger, which is a form of heat treatment. The ability to raise iron to temperatures by which it could be cast was not possible back then. We mentioned the development of chariots, which had existed since Sumerian times, but now they were advanced and could carry multiple warriors. Horse domestication may well have entered Anatolia with the Hittites themselves and harnesses had been improved to make the whole unit more efficient. Glass appeared to be on the rise as peoples began to master its production and it may have been the Egyptians who brought it into the realm of the Levant and in turn the expertise would also be attributed to those Canaanites who would ultimately be regarded as the Phoenicians who were well known for their glassmaking expertise. The Egyptians also had the ability to construct significant war chariots like the Hittites and their influence over the Canaanite lands of the Levant would increase concerns for the neighbouring kingdoms. One thing that does appear to have advanced and evolved during this movement was the alphabetic scripts that were now reaching Phoenician city-states and would give birth to the Phoenician alphabet. This was probably a significant and necessary advance due to the fact that the Phoenician city-states were gaining quite the reputation for their expert artisanry and their willingness to encourage trade. Neighbouring kingdoms would look more to preserve this source of wealth and in the subsequent years these lands would be fought over between the Egyptians, Hittites and Mitanni. The Kassite Babylonians would also be an influence on the politics of the region and as such some of the kingdoms would look to align themselves with each other against one of the others with diplomatic intermarriage between members of their royal families. When King Tudhalia took over the Hittite Empire around the turn of the 14th century BCE, this would usher in a new dawn of Hittite dominance. Firstly, the Hittites would strike out at their closest neighbours, the Mitanni, and their success would lead to the Mitanni becoming a vassal state of the Hittite Empire. This would excite those Assyrians who had been assimilated into the Mitanni Empire, into revolting against their Mitanni overlords and taking back their own independence. This would effectively end the influence of the Mitanni in Near East politics and it would also be the reintroduction of the Assyrians on the international stage. In the meantime, the Hittites and the Egyptians would turn their attentions towards each other. This would culminate in the Battle of Kadesh in the Levant in the year 1274 BCE. Ramesses II led the Egyptian army to a tactical victory over the Hittites led by Muwatali II. In the aftermath, it would be Muwatali's brother, Hattusili III, who would negotiate a peace treaty with Ramesses II. Why was this necessary? Well, it was clear that the Assyrians were becoming ever more powerful and it was necessary for the Egyptians and the Hittites to finally work together 
to preserve their own individual interests. At first, this appeared to work, as the ambitious Assyrian kings would have to turn their attentions to bullying the Kassites down in Babylonia for a while during the 13th century BCE. However, things would change dramatically during the historical event which we call the Late Bronze Age Collapse. The Late Bronze Age Collapse This is an event that we covered in detail during episode 6 of volume 2. Great political changes were about to take place. Cyprus appears to be a principal place to highlight that things were somewhat unstable. The Phoenician settlers on the island were suddenly invaded by the Hittites, who may have been desperate for resources to stave off foreign attacks on their lands. Quite who was responsible for these attacks is unclear, but it may not be unreasonable to suggest that it could be displaced peoples from the Trojan Wars in western Anatolia and adjacent Greek lands. If so, it could also explain the waves of sea peoples reportedly invading Egypt at a similar time. And it could also explain the mysterious emergence of a Philistine peoples on the Mediterranean coast of the southern Levant that appeared to have a Greek influence in their culture. The Hittite Empire was in terrible trouble and this is highlighted by pleas from the people of Ugarit to the Cypriots for help due to the fact that their Hittite overlords had deserted them when they required military defence, possibly from invading sea peoples. The reason for the Hittite absence is because they had bigger problems closer to home, with their own heartlands in serious jeopardy. The capital city of the Hittite Empire was not only destroyed, but it was abandoned beforehand. The Hittites clearly knew what was coming and got out. This was the end of the Hittite Empire. Gone were the pioneers of the Iron Age. The new iron experts would become the Assyrians. Now, the Bible would have us believe that now was the time of a Jewish exodus from Egypt into the Levant. There were certainly migrations going on during the late Bronze Age collapse, but there is no archaeological evidence of a biblical Jewish exodus. That's certainly not to say that it didn't happen, though. It wouldn't be the first time that the Bible was proved right. Certainly Canaanite land had always been closely linked to the Egyptians too, but other experts strongly believe that the Hebrews historically came from Canaan. We do know that the Hebrew tribes stayed reasonably close to one another as described in the book of Judges in the Hebrew Bible, ultimately bonding as a united monarchy of Israel, initially under the leadership of Saul. The Phoenicians were able to survive the late Bronze Age collapse as their trade networks expanded and it was possibly a case of having to expand them as surrounding kingdoms and empires either shrank or disappeared. The Phoenicians had also by this time developed their own alphabetic script which is regarded 
as a significant ancestor of many modern alphabets. The Phoenicians would take to the sea with, with all of their wares and seek trading opportunities further west. Meanwhile, the Kassite Babylonians would see their capital city of Babylon sacked by the Elamites and ending the Kassite dynasties. Assyria would experience a period of struggle as migrating Arameans from the Levant would settle the fertile lands of what was once the extended Assyrian Empire and pin the Assyrians back into their key cities of Assur and Nineveh. This is considered to be a dark age in the Middle East. The Iron Age The last period of the ancient Near East is a period of consolidation and rebuilding. Ironworking and glass manufacturing was now becoming more and more common throughout the entire geographical area. The Assyrians would be the best known of the iron workers, while the Phoenicians were the experts when it came to glass. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah were united under King David after a biblical victory over Goliath and the Philistines. Jerusalem would be established as the capital city of Judah. Under Solomon, Israel and Judah would become even stronger. Megiddo would become an important royal fortress in Israel under Solomon. However, after Solomon's death, the united monarchy would split into two separate kingdoms, Israel and Judah. The Sabaeans were the emerging culture at the very south of the Arabian Peninsula in the more fertile coastal lands which make up the modern lands of the country Yemen. We can see these people referred to in both the Tanakh and the Quran. Although the Quran also suggests the presence of a kingdom of Ad in ancient Yemeni lands too. North of the Tigris River and centred around Lake Van, a kingdom of Van emerged, which we have referred to frequently during this podcast as the Kingdom of Uratu, and this would be considered as a precursor to the modern country of Armenia. It would exist pretty much in the shadow of its ever-expanding and ever more powerful neighbour to the south, the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were becoming the most dominant military power that the world had ever seen and had already started to claw back its lost lands from the Arameans during the 9th and 10th centuries BCE. Things would start to become very interesting during the 8th century BCE, however, as the Assyrians turned their attentions towards the Levant. Israel and Judah were now separate kingdoms, but were the lands of the god Yahweh, according to the Hebrew Bible. It was through the prophet Amos, who lived during the 8th century BCE, that Yahweh would send his message to the people of Israel and Judah, that they would be punished for worshipping false gods. And this may be a spiritual reasoning for the imminent torment 
that would follow thanks to the invading Assyrians. It was the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser V, who would conquer Israel and he would incorporate the kingdom of Israel into the Assyrian Empire and would deport the elite class to prevent any future uprisings. These people would be known as the famous Lost Tribes of the Hebrew Bible. By the time that Sennacherib became the Assyrian king, the Assyrians were as close to their military peak as ever. Sennacherib would crush Babylon and would effectively annex the kingdom of Judah, despite an unsuccessful siege of Jerusalem. Enough damage to the Judean kingdom had been done, as all other major towns and cities, including Lachish, had been successfully besieged. This completes the story of the Near East in ancient times and brings us to the cusp of the classical world where we would see the fall of Assyria and Babylon before the rise of the Persian empires with the Achaemenids, the Parthians and the Sassanids not to mention the interruption to the Persian dominance by a certain Alexander the Great. That's all to come in volume 3. However, there are still very many stories to tell before we reach the end of Volume 2. And next week will be a complete shift in focus as we move down to Africa, and specifically Egypt, as we continue the story on pre-dynastic Egypt from the first volume and find out about the emergence of the Old Kingdom of Egypt. Thank you as ever for listening to the podcast. Um, these summary episodes seem to be quite popular in actual fact. I didn't know how well they would be received when I first came up with the idea, but they do tend to be popular. They tend to be quite healthily listened to by comparison to other episodes. So they're worth doing, and I think they do summarise things and possibly give you the facility to go back and listen to other episodes again and They'll have a lot more context when you have more of a knowledge of the general aspects of ancient Near East and the whole story. So hopefully it's a productive thing to do. Just time then to update you on what's going on in the world of History of the World podcast. Uh, great web page links and um, podcasts, recommended podcasts have been added to the History of the World podcast.com website so go to historyoftheworldpodcast.com go and have a click around the pages there we've, given, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you the great web page links links back to um, things that have been relevant according to each episode and the stories and some of the videos that we've referred to you can find them all in one place there with the recommended podcasts they're just a few of my favorite podcasts and even one or two there that are relevant to the subject matter that I've used as a point of reference. Um, one of them I've uh, put on there is the History of Ancient Egypt podcast, which is uh, done by a gentleman called Dominic Perry from New Zealand. It's an, ex it's an exceptionally good podcast and well worth a listen if you're into ancient Egypt. Uh, Dominic uh, is very experienced in the field of Egyptology and uh, he's, he's given me a great platform to launch from in terms of presenting my own Egyptian podcasts, uh, which will start next week. So visit the webpage, go back, you'll find all the old favourites there, um, including the history of ancient Greece, 
Rex Factor. They're all there. Just go there and um, find out for yourself uh, what these podcasts are. If they're not already in your library, give them a go. One of the podcasts on there is called Literature and History. It's by a gentleman called Doug Metzger, who I mentioned last week was the voice of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I recommended in an earlier episode. It was also the voice of Planet and Sky, which is a rock opera, which uh, has been enhanced into a podcast, an explanatory podcast. And Doug provides the voiceover for that very, very well, very articulate and uh, well uh, emotionally controlled. He really does have a skill for it. And uh, he actually said to me um, over an email, he just said, is there a place where the History of the World podcast can be downloaded? Well, that threw me a bit of a curveball because I've never asked myself that question. As such, I've since discovered that the podcast uh, exists on Player FM. And Player FM is somewhere where you can download episodes of your podcast, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. But also I've gone to uh, another trouble and just gone to the History of the World podcast website, our own website, and where you see the links for Volume 1 and Volume 2, there is now a download button. So hopefully now, if you want to download an episode onto your iPod, um, you can do that. So hopefully that, that will encourage more people to come and join in and listen to the podcast. So if you do nothing else, actually, just come and visit the website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com, and have a little bit of a click around and you'll see all the new features that we've added. We received a very nice recommendation on Facebook from Riley Hudat Venable. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure if that's your christened name. Uh, it'd be pretty cool if it was. Um, it says, excellent research presented like it is coming from your mate from you from your local pub down to earth presentation multiple explanations for events from multiple scholars thank you very much riley the most active place um where the history of the world podcast on social media can be found is twitter and there's often a lot of conversation on there and uh, i think more people are involved in the twitter feed for the history of the world podcast and all the other feeds put together so if you want to get involved in some engaging conversation with some other listeners to the podcast then by all means uh, come and join in at the twitter feed at the history of the world podcast twitter feed the the handle is at hot world podcast now of course unless you're listening to this podcast weeks or years after they've been recorded this is now april and uh, that means that this is the month of the London Marathon. And one of the History of the World podcast listeners is going to be running in the London Marathon. And he's going to be running for a very worthy cause. It's the Princess Royal Trust for Carers. And um, I'm, I'm sure I've mentioned before that, that carers um, really do need our support. And, uh, and it's a great noble thing that the food soldier who is our listener is uh, doing in order to raise funds for the carers uh, the princess royal trust for carers which is based in hampshire and they basically support carers it's uh, it's a, it can be a lonely old experience being a carer so 
it's a it's a great uh, cause that you're running for, and um, hopefully you'll make it round in one piece and earn lots of money. And uh, I do encourage the History of the World podcast listeners just to take a look and consider making a contribution towards that uh, charity that our valued listener, the Food Soldier, a.k.a. Brendan Wood, will be running for and supporting. The links will be on the Facebook page and the Twitter feed. Well, hopefully we'll also have uh, some more news next week about new projects that the History of the World podcast is trying to get involved with. Uh, we're currently negotiating with uh, someone in terms of getting an, a sort of an affiliation with a YouTube channel, so hopefully something to uh, to report back to you with next week. However, next week, a big week. It's now going to be the start of the Egyptian story, and uh, we're going to embark on something like a 10-podcast uh, series about Egypt from 3000 BCE, or just over, just before 3000 BC, right through to the uh, to the end of the ancient age. So we're going to be exploring the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, the new kingdom, all the intermediates, uh, the religion of Egypt, uh, the the mighty pyramids. All of that is going to be encompassed into the next ten podcasts. So that will all start next week. Uh, I can't wait. Very excited about it. It's going to be great. So there we go, the ancient Near East, all done and dusted. Now we're finished, and next week it will be Egypt. So look forward to seeing you then. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyofthewordpodcast.com and email us at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr.